You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, little man. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I'm sure you can probably tell by the lovely sound of my voice that I'm getting over a cold. And believe it or not, this is the best I've sounded since last Sunday. A really great way to get everyone to stay away from you in a work environment in 2023, though, is to just deadass sound like a foghorn who wished to be a real girl. No movie reviews this week because you're socially discouraged from going out in public sounding like I currently do. But I do have a question, just a quick question before we begin. Like the last couple of weeks, my listenership has gone up like noticeably quite a bit, which of course is super exciting. But I haven't heard anything like anybody like shouted me out or did a thing or whatever it is. So I'm just curious as to how like you knew people found me since like if you started listening like the last month or so, because I've done like zero promotion lately. Like I've been I've been crazy busy. So yeah, if you um if you just started listening the last month, I'm curious how you found me. So let me know on socials or shoot me an email or whatever you're comfortable with or say nothing that also works. And for all the new listeners, welcome to my studio apartment operation. I am happy to have you. It still completely blows my mind that people who don't know me actually tune in to hear the sound of my voice each week. Like I, well, especially right now, I barely like listening to the sound of my own voice. That's not true. I love the sound of my own voice. Anyway, (laughs) this month we're reviving an old theme and jumping back into the histories and responsibilities of certain jobs on film sets. We'll go into how the jobs originated and developed over time, identify different jobs within the department if applicable, and hopefully by the end of each episode, you'll have at least a basic working knowledge of what that person does. This week, the people in charge of everything you see around and behind the actors and just the entire worlds of a film. And that job is the production designer. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. feeling too lazy this last couple of weeks to go through my old scripts, even though they're actually quite organized. So I don't remember how I structured these episodes the last time I did these in like January of 2021, I think. Also, that was like two years ago, and I am way better at this whole thing than I was back then. So I'm just going to kind of totally switch this up. So if you're listening to these after listening to the older ones, this is going to be a little bit different, probably. Maybe. I can't remember. Just winging it. She said as if that's not more or less what she does every week. The best place to start, I think, for those of you who aren't super familiar with the behind the scenes intricacies of film is to just explain the job I'm going to be telling you about this week. So let's just do that. A production designer in the most basic sense is the person who, in collaboration with the director, cinematographer, costume department, makeup and hair and producers, of course, is 
tasked with creating the overall aesthetic and vibe of a film's world. This includes the sets, the props, and pretty much everything related to sets and props that is created and acquired by the production designer and their team. If done well, production design gives the audience a sense of time period, location, and even character actions and feelings. This job is not to be confused with a modern art director, though it was once the same job. The art director manages the actual process of creating the visuals. So the art director works for the production designer, who is the creative head. Depending on a film's budget and a production's requirements, a production design department can also include set decorators, buyers, graphic designers, prop makers, and set builders. I'll kind of explain what the least obvious ones of those do a little bit later on in the episode. But many times, however, a especially on more independent films or low-budget films, these jobs might be limited to as few as one very stressed-out individual. Honestly, we will likely be kind of dealing with both production designer and art director this week because the jobs are typically so closely linked and, like I said, used to be one and the same. So now that you know the basics of what this job is, let's jump into some of that lovely history stuff, shall we? And in true Tinsel Factory fashion, this is a speed run. The beginning of film was as basic as could be from a scenic standpoint. If you weren't shooting a train coming into a station or workers leaving a factory out in the wild, you might have performers traipsing before your lens in a studio. In these days of all the innovators trying to work out the science of the moving picture, the artiness of what was being shot, produced, and ultimately consumed was quite low. Most early films featuring actors or performers were shot against a dark wall to optimize this exposure of the subject. In fact, it was basically just to capture the movement. They didn't care about like what was just hanging out in the background. It was just, they didn't come to see that. If they wanted that, they could just look at pictures. In fact, the reason many people considered a film to be a novelty probably back then was the fact that it was, overall, a basic ultra short form of entertainment. As the medium developed, however, eventually going from the peep show solo viewing experience of the kinetoscope to the public screenings brought on by the Lumiere brothers, so came the need for someone to design the worlds within which the characters were interacting and performing and, you know, doing more and more intricate things. They wanted them to move on the X and Y axis instead of just the X axis. And moving further back into a dark, like, background wasn't going to look super cool. One of the first people to do this in a noticeable way was George Millier, whose use of painted backdrops and in-camera effects created worlds audiences had never seen before. Think Trip to the Moon. It was probably the first, like, any kind of science fiction film or fantasy film. It kind of goes in, in between both. But, um, yeah, that didn't, that did, wasn't a thing before. One of the first people employed as what would become known as a production designer was hired by actually the first woman to bear the title of director, Alice Guy Blanche. Blanche? I'm still really bad at French, and I, I listened to it before. I still I can't do French. I'm trying so hard. I'm sorry. At the turn of the century in France, Blanche hired Henri Menezier as an art director to work on her films. For her, Menessier designed the set pieces, which were shot either in studio or outdoors, painted scene backdrops, oversaw the construction people and painters, and also helped create special effects. Around the same time in the United States, Edwin S. Porter, arguably the first American director, was using backdrops as well as a moving train to take audiences on a thrill ride unlike anything they'd ever seen before. When audiences began flocking to theaters all around the country to see Porter's The Great Train Robbery, other movie makers of the era began constructing larger sets for their films to compete. 
Sometime around 1914-1915, director D.W. Griffith created a new job for his head carpenter, Frank Wortman, making him an early art director with a set of responsibilities level with that of that day's cameraman. Wortman and his team's work are the reason that, for better or worse, Birth of a Nation was a success that it was. They built all the interiors for that film, which were far more intricate than anything that had been seen in American cinema up to that point. Early sets and backdrops used in films were often taken apart and reused to make new ones, and an art department was formed around this to keep track and maintain them. Art directors were eventually employed by all of the major studios and organized all the studio's inventory. Many of these individuals, as they were employees of the studio, would never get on-screen credit for their work. Back in these more money-than-sense days of early cinema, there could be several art directors on a single film, depending on the size of the picture. One person might just be doing backdrops, another person just on props, while another did the sketches of the overall set, but they all had the same, like, job title. This, of course, would change as things got more advanced, requiring a lot of these jobs to specialize, but within the studio system, there was always one head managing the whole team, providing each studio with its own unique look. In Germany, after World War I, film saw one of its first stylistic movements emerge, definitely its first major one if it wasn't the first one, and that of course was German Expressionism. This film style saw a major departure from realistic settings to the disorienting and macabre, disturbing audiences in the process. The elements of this movement also came out of necessity, as Germany was in an economic depression because of that whole World War I thing, and painting the intricacies of scenes was a hell of a lot cheaper than actually acquiring and doing lighting. German Expressionism continues to inspire horror production designers to this day. The movement also caused a basic split in production design uh, categorization between realistic and expressionistic design. Now that it became clear that the art of set design was in full development in Hollywood and, you know, most film industries around the world, it created a slew of creative types to head out to Hollywood or wherever to seek out the film business for employment. Art direction was now an art form within an art form. In 1924, 63 top Hollywood art directors formed the Cinema Gundy Club. The group's goal was to bring awareness to the public at large as to the contributions the art director had to the art of the motion picture. The Cinema Gundy Club is still around today in the form of the Art Directors Guild. Also around 1924 was when 3D models started being used to give depth to a scene. This is especially prevalent in 1924's Ben-Hur. 1927 saw the film Metropolis and Eric Kettelhut's incredible set designs still influence sci-fi designers to this day. The same year, when sound entered the pictures, production designers would be forced to adapt and often sometimes help find creative ways to hide those cumbersome microphones. In 1928, at the first Academy Awards ceremony, William Cameron Menzies, who we're going to talk a little bit about more here shortly because he's important, won the first Academy Award for his Best Interior Decoration on the films The Dove and The Tempest. Back in the first Academy Awards, I think it was only the first Academy Awards, you could win one award for work on multiple films. The Interior Decoration Award would be renamed Achievement in Art Direction the following year. The award is now known as Best Production Design, a change that wasn't made until 2012. And since 1947, the production designer and the set decorator on a film are nominated together. Also, I didn't know this, but it kind of makes sense in hindsight. The award is given to interior design on a film. Even though location scouting is part of the production designer's jobs, there's other people that obviously are involved as well. It does 
does not count towards their eligibility to be nominated for an Oscar. Obviously, if things are built, that changes things. But I didn't know that, so I thought that was interesting. Jumping ahead a little bit, the term production designer was coined by David O. Selznick to describe the work of William Cameron Menzies on 1939's Gone with the Wind. Selznick, in a memo to everyone working on the film, declared that Menzies would have the final say in everything pertaining to the Technicolor film, the scenic design and decoration, and the overall look of the film. Obviously, this is quite a lot more power than a modern production designer has, as the Technicolor responsibilities would land with the DP, and the overall look would land on the director. So... Selznick giving Menzies his power was a major shakeup in the responsibilities of just an art director. It's also, from then on out, the job was known as a production designer. Menzies would also direct the Burning of Atlanta segment of Gone with the Wind. Menzies had been known for his key creative eye in an era where most Hollywood production design was unimaginative and inexpressive. And, you know, very often recycled from production to production. Menzies' work on Gone with the Wind would change that while earning him a special award for the newly minted job of production designer. Orson Welles of Citizen Kane fame would once describe Menzies as, quote, impossible to overpraise. From the height of the silent era and into the 1950s, production design developed in the U.S. mainly within the studio system, which meant it was very, you know, cookie cutter and Xeroxy. During the golden era, thanks to the management I mentioned earlier, you could often tell what film a studio was coming from just by looking at a a still from it. The art director and then the production designers were overseeing teams on all the films in production, making a continuity not just within a film, but across a studio's entire slate. Again, the fact that they were continuously recycling sets didn't hurt either. For examples of this, um, which I got from the book Production Design for the Screen by Jane Barnwell, Paramount's overall look was overseen by Hans Dreyer during this time, which saw many films with, quote, the modern big white sets with Art Deco-inspired surfaces. RKO's musicals, which were overseen by Van Nest Poglazi, were, quote, Art Deco combined with neoclassicism. And the sets were often very black and white. Well, I mean, everything was black and white because black and white film, but like very black, very white. MGM was overseen by Cedric Gibbons, and those films were known for just being bougie and grand. It was MGM, of course it was. With color entering the game in a big way in the 1930s, this meant a big change for production design, set design, what have you. This led to designers having to adapt color palettes and designs, and of course, you know, color theory entered the picture, no pun intended, and led to the evocation of unconscious emotions and feelings being conveyed through color while also filling out the film worlds. Within each genre, rules were developing as well. For example, a noir's design, with its low-key lighting, would need to invoke a sense of danger and foreboding to complement this. In contrast, musicals of that day looked more like their stage production counterparts with sets that matched that vibe and were optimized to show off the performances. So, you know, noir is very tight and claustrophobic, but musicals are big and open and wide. And a production designer would have to, you know, make sense that complemented both of these these situations. By the 40s, books are being published on the art of production design, not unlike the one I used to help me write this episode, starting with Edward Carrick's Design for Motion Pictures, which came out in 1941. 
Ten years after that, in the Calle du Cinema Manifesto, check out my episode on French cinema from last year for more on that, our tour theory was introduced, which emphasized the importance of a film's director as to creating, quote-unquote, the look of a film. This began changing the public's perception and also the studios on who should be in charge of the film's creative vision and overall look. Before this, the studio heads were more hands-on in determining this, and directors were kind of just more dealing with the actors. Everything else was a little bit more, like, within within their own lanes. So when the Calle du Cinema guys made this declaration, the movements that followed and the emphasis on the director irreparably damaged the credit that was given to the design teams, and it, frankly, not much has changed since then. Like, when you look at a film... For most people that aren't in the business, um, you look at like, oh, this director did a great job. This director did that. But like there was like a whole bunch of other people doing this stuff. But the emphasis on the director being the one who made the picture from, you know, the more casual outlook of everything that came from the Kaidu Cinema or it originated more or less from within the Kaidu Cinema movement, which is as much good as that did for for film at that time. It did a lot. It did a lot of damage to the uh the, the worker bees in film production, which, you know, is a shame. In the 50s, as shooting on location and off of the back lots became more popular, this might have caused the role of the production designer to go extinct, but instead they just became responsible for addressing real locations that the films were now shooting in. It did more damage to the construction people than it did to the production designers. By the 1960s, the studio looks had faded into obscurity as the rise of the new Hollywood filmmakers met new design choices which were unique to each individual filmmaker and their production designer. The production designer would, of course, still be able to express their input, but the director's vision was paramount. And as if they didn't have enough to do with all of that, the 1970s saw the introduction of computer-generated imagery, the design elements of which would fall partially on the production designer. But now they've got, like, computer people that they have to produce things for. This and the new looks rolling over from the 60s were used by studios in their marketing attempts to try and bring people back to the cinema. The, the thought process was like to show people like, look at all these cool things you can see on the big screen. You can't see that on your 21 inch monstrosity in the den. For those of you like your Gen Zers and below, go look up what a 1970s television looked like. They're wild. As the creative opportunities expanded into the 1980s and 90s, coherent looks emerged within franchises as well as franchises became more of a regular thing. You can usually tell a James Bond film just by looking at a single frame. Same goes for a Halloween or Jurassic Park or Harry Potter film. There's a brand familiarity more often than not that will drive audiences to the theaters because there's, you know, a continuity betwixt them, which in part is brought by the production designers, created by the production designer. In the new millennium, the first completely digital production design team was formed to complete 2002's Minority Report. And it was a surprise to me, honestly, that it was that film. Like, I would have bet money that the first completely digital production design team would have been formed for, like, one of the first Star Wars prequels. Like, definitely Attack of the Clones. Like, I remember watching making-ofs of that, and it's just, like, a blue screen. The whole movie was blue screen. So I was surprised it was Minority Report. But yeah, so that was that. Was that. And for the last, like... 20 years or so that's kind of been you know the same not a lot of not a lot of major shakeups in the in the production design game these days so yeah there you have it that's the tinsel factory speed run of how production designers have developed over the years into the modern sense of the job title so what does a modern production designer do these days once hired, a production designer's work starts where most crew members is might with the script 
The individual hired for this job will start off by going through the script, creating their ideas for each scene, identifying and logging props that will be required for the production, and then setting out to find a vision that will lie within the limits and opportunities the story and budget provides. Compiling that at this stage could include researching time periods, cultures, architecture, other similar films, and also determining whether or not something needs to be built for the production or if an existing location might be used. Essentially, the production designer needs to look at whatever they need to spark their creativity to churn out what is needed for the production. This, of course, varies from project to project, genre to genre, and of course, production designer to production designer. Special things, certain things like in the genres of musical, sci-fi, or fantasy are, you know, often quite stylized, which is something that they have to consider. For musicals, this style will tend to be more psychological than just outright visually off because you're, you know, making a world where people are singing and dancing to communicate. That is until like recently where they tried to do the realistic ones like Les Mis or like the little bit of Dear Evan Hansen I managed to be able to sit through. Like those have a little bit less of the fantastical thing, but more often than not, you know, there's an element of the fantastical within it because there's people just singing in streets. For sci-fi or fantasy, you're potentially creating a type of world that has never been seen before. And that means if you're creating a whole new world, you've got to have a vision that is consistent throughout. If the visuals hop around too much, it's going to be jarring for the audience. There has to be a through line through it, even though it's nothing anybody's ever seen before. Also, period films are unique because you're likely going to have to acquire antiques to pull off the time period you're going for. And as someone who's made a period piece, I can speak from experience, it is a pain in the ass. While these props may only ever appear in a distant background, they are vital for providing the audience with a fully realized world. Seeing anything from the modern world might pull somebody out of the film. Not a film, but do you remember the whole coffee cup fiasco from Game of Thrones a few years ago? That was a big deal because it immediately pulled everybody out and everybody was like, no, it's not dragons. But yeah, it's the production. Actually, that was a failure of the of the continuity department, but that's a different issue. But overall, it's the production designer's job to ensure that the scenery doesn't destroy the audience's suspension of disbelief. Also, anybody with eyes on that set probably should have been like, hey, there's a Starbucks in the scene. Anyway... <laughs> These amalgamations of ideas and research will be presented in meetings with the director and also the cinematographer. Between the production designer and the cinematographer, these two also got to figure out like where light sources like windows and lamps should go, as well as going over the film stock and lighting styles as that will affect the way the sets are shot, which is something the production designer has to consider. This stage is most often where the collaboration between departments will begin for the production designer, and those three individuals hopefully work together to create one cohesive vision when all is said and done. These presentations for the production designer can be done a number of ways, like using mood boards, book binders, PowerPoint presentations, etc. These presentations could feature potential props, ideas for sets, as well as color charts and sketches. How these ideas are presented are based primarily on the designer's background and how they wish to present their ideas. These ideas then get retooled and reworked, eventually ending up as technical specs and designs and shopping lists until the soon-to-be-hired creative team under the production designer understands was required of them to finalize the sets, acquire the props, and so on. By this point, they are typically overseen by the art director who reports to the production designer who is also keeping an eye on the budget in conjunction typically with a producer, a line producer on a bigger film. 
The production design team will also perform research on locations if needed, including determining whether or not a real location can or should be used. They'll also create blueprints for set construction, develop and review budgets, and determine what items will be needed to represent specific scenes versus money they have to get everything done. Then the building and acquisitions of the things begins. Assuming we're dealing with a big budget film, the following common types of individuals will be hired. There's, like I said, the modern art director whose job is to work more closely with the crew and support staff to make sure that tasks are being carried out in a timely manner. There will be a buyer whose job is exactly what it sounds like. They go out and buy things based on the production designer's designs. Construction crews are hired to build sets and anybody who falls up under there. And prop makers are hired to make props if needed and also anyone further specialized the production production might need that would fall under these jobs with the head of each of those crews reporting back to the art director who's reporting to the production designer. Um, There's also graphic designers for creating things like labels for items because copyrights. They might be taking photos from the actors and superimposing them together to create family photos, which gives the illusion that the actors are actually a family and not just a group of randos like they actually are. And general things of that nature or like like newspapers, like anything that needs like printed or any kind of like design that goes like on a label or so. And basically anything you need Photoshop for or the like. That's what a graphic artist is there for. Um, and then there's finally the last major one I would say would be a set dresser whose job it is is to take all of these pieces that have been acquired and built and then, you know, create, like place everything within, you know, within the set so that, you know, the actors have a fully realized world by the end of all of this. Others involved in the visual aspects of the production will also be brought on around this point, and they will also be consulted with. And that includes the costume designer, hair and makeup artists, because you got to make sure nothing is clashing. After all of this is done, filming commences. On a large film, the building of sets is likely going on throughout production. On a smaller one, the production designer, likely also performing the art direction and set dressing, will be there each day to prep sets. If they're doing the building, they're probably off managing. And then the set dresser is kind of with their assistance is flying solo, more or less. Set dressers, like I said, in conjunction with a production manager, have by this point figured out all of the items, textures, colors, fabric patterns, and what have you to combine to create a set for a scene. The set dresser, if there is one, is also granted an air of creative freedom on the day to put the set together for filming. It's kind of like the final eye in this process before the camera, of course, captures it. Once production wraps, that's usually the case for the production designer as well, but there are exceptions. If you just wrapped principal photography on a movie with extensive VFX that will have to be added in post, the production designer, of course, will be staying on. Their job isn't done yet. The production designer may also be brought in to consult when it comes time to color the film, and this allows a chance for them to check in once more for any inconsistencies. Again, this is typically done more on the bigger films. So after all of this, you may be asking, how does one get this job? Well, like anything in film, there's no hard trod roadmap, but there are some basics. You can take production design courses at a film school or a college, which is a great way to find your creative sparks, kind of learn the histories, study those who came before if you haven't done that already, and provide you with confidence in your abilities, and also just to give you basic abilities. Of course, taking a course like this is not a promise of getting work. By all accounts, though, that I can find, a bachelor's degree is incredibly helpful for eventually obtaining the job of production designer. But, you know, you're dealing with construction in many cases for production design. So having a college degree and basic, probably a basic understanding of math, you know, that the fact that that's a thing shouldn't be a surprise. 
If college isn't for you, you can also start trying to find work as an art PA and start getting work that way. An art production assistant is the lowest ranking member of the production design team, but that is a great way to get in the door and start making those ever so important connections. From there, hopefully you begin your rise to the top. Working on student films is also a great way to get production design department credits on your resume. The pay is low or nothing, but you got to get you got to get those you got to get experience. It's a it's a unfortunate side of making it in this business is you have to do a lot of work for no pay, especially if you don't know anybody. Also, you'll want to make sure you keep a portfolio of your work online so you're an attractive candidate for potential employers. They need to see what you're capable of. It's very easy to do that these days. But yeah, for more on this topic, I cannot suggest Jane Barnwell's book on on production design. It completely saved my ass this week and is available at most major book retailers. It's got everything you need to kind of get a lay of the land. And I was going to return it when I was done because I bought it from Amazon and I don't I don't care if I screw them out of 50 bucks. But then I started going through the book and I was like, no, I'm keeping this. This is my book now. (laughs) It's it's really, really great. So if this if any of this interested you at all, it's it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. So, yeah. Production design may not be as highly regarded as it once was, at least to the public, but it is still one of the most vital creative positions on a film crew. Their work, even if it's contemporary, creates new worlds, and in some cases, new universes far beyond our own. Without them, we'd still be watching actors perform against a background devoid of any vitality. And that's going to do it for this week. I am so sorry if this was not listenable. I am hoping my voice is better by next week because I can't talk for this much longer. It's driving me crazy. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I've got a letterbox account which features my watch lists, film diaries, and recommended viewing for this episode. You can check it out at the link in the show notes. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you could please rate, review, and subscribe. Sounds like some of you are doing this, so that other people can find this podcast. That would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. There's also buy me a coffee. I've got some weird tea latte I got from Coffee Bean. Uh, thank you, Michael. Michael bought me a coffee this week so thank you cheers michael thank you very much i've also got merch check it out at the link in the show notes next week we're looking into the history of the eyes behind the cameras the cinematographer thanks again for listening and until next time that's a wrap